Thank you so much for reading so well, Jane. It's really nice to see everyone, as you can see on the screen, I believe. At one point, we are continuing in our series called Life. We've been tracking through John's Gospel in our first term. Over the last few years, we've got to chapter 11, and we're going to be covering chapters 11 to 13, and we're in our third installment today. Not to be confused with the other life course, which happened on Tuesday evening, the first evening. Thank you very much for your prayers and your encouragement in that. We had a really wonderful evening. We had around 50 people there, 30 or so who are long-term members of St. Thomas's and were hosting and serving, brought together wonderfully by Ling and the serving team, which did a great job, and about 18, not about, actually 18 guests who were coming to join the life course to look into the life that Jesus offers. That would be wonderful. And come as well. If you've missed out and you'd like to join us this coming Tuesday, it's not too late. We've got four weeks to go. I'm going to lead us in prayer and then we'll begin. I'd be grateful if you kept your Bibles open at page 898. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that your Son has shed his precious blood for us. We pray that this morning you would strengthen our faith in that blood that confidence that we have, that we have had all our sins washed away and that we have life and life to the full. Amen. As you know, I lived in the UK for some time and there was a TV show that was regularly on called Antiques Roadshow. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's the show where antique valuers receive bits and pieces from hopeful people that look sometimes like trash they hope is treasure. So you imagine somebody brings along a Russian nesting dolls intricately painted. Their mother told them this was handed down generation by generation, a gift from Catherine the Great to a servant, ancestor, valuation, five pounds. (laughs) Made in China. (laughs) But not always, not always. There was a gold-plated crocodile-skinned in case 1932 Lesia Luxus II handed before one of the valuers once, found by somebody in 2013. It eventually sold for 424,000 US dollars by Bromptons, the auctioneers in Hong Kong. What looked like a slightly battered ancient camera turned out to be true treasure. Our very own potential undiscovered treasure is in my old study and my predecessor's study, Simon. I have it here. It is a sketch of the church prior to this church that was on this site, once called St. Leonard's, designed by Conrad Martins, who hand-engraved or carved or whatever it is, the baptismal font at the back there, one of the most famous colonial architects. And this is what, by the hand of SLM, Simon says. Is this an original drawing by Conrad Martins? Question mark. If so, it could be worth twenty to $50,000. Jeff Barnum will want to talk to me, our treasurer. (laughs) Valuation, appropriate valuation, proper valuation. That's our subject this morning. Looking at something and understanding its true value, what to some might appear to be trash, but in actual fact is of infinite worth. And the subject that has been brought before the valuers this morning is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. 
And I don't need to tell you that there are different views of the value of Jesus' blood. Two key figures for us in this passage. Mary, on the one hand, who is devoted to, enthralled by, adores Jesus for his upcoming burial, his blood, his death availed for her. And Judas, well, who did not value the blood of Christ and instead took the coins and betrayed him. The aim of our author, John, and ultimately God, is that we would see this morning that Mary's valuation is the right one. That those of us who do appreciate the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I take it that is the vast majority of us here this morning, because you've come to meditate on what Jesus has done for you. You've made the right call. You've made the right valuation Two scenes, as it were. First is an apparent waste. An apparent waste, beginning in chapter 11, verse 55. As I said, we're calling this the Life Series. And this section, this second half of John's Gospel, begins with life. We saw it. Lazarus raised from the dead, four days, rotting in a tomb. Yet with the word of Jesus Christ, Lazarus come out and restored in relationship to his sisters, to his Lord, which is life, as we learn in John's Gospel, knowing God and knowing God's people eternally. Yet even in the midst of this joy, there is the brooding, looming presence of death, even in that chapter. Chapter 11, verse 7, Jesus said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. In other words, let us go to the place of my guillotine, my execution squad, because everybody knew that that was what Judea represented. Verse 8, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews just now were seeking to stone you. Are you going to go there again? Thomas understands it. Rather proudly, he puffs up his chest. Let us go with him that we may die with him. Life, and yet through death, intricately Connected. Last week we met Caiaphas, the high priest of Israel, the one who should have welcomed the Messiah. And yet he spoke words that were better than he knew. He said, do you not understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people than the whole nation perish? He thought a sacrificial lamb so that the Romans wouldn't give us any trouble, so there would be no insurrection. But in fact, he spoke something far truer than he knew. Jesus, who would die in the place of the nation, bearing the judgment of God for their sins, and in fact, for the sins of the whole world, so that they and so that we could live. And next week, we'll see him entering into Jerusalem on a donkey, Palm Sunday. It's not Palm Sunday next Sunday, but that's the passage we're looking at as he comes in triumphal entry. Hosanna, the king. But soon he will receive a different type of coronation. But here now, verse 55, it is the Passover. And John wants us to recognize that. It's not accidental. If you've been tracking, tracking through John, you'll know it's the third Passover. Chapter 2, there was a Passover. Chapter 6, there was a Passover. This is the third and final Passover. Passover was like the modern Hajj. Muslims from all around the world going to 
Mecca, to the holy site. Well, Jerusalem would swell from 100,000 people to over a million, according to the historians, as all the Jews from around the whole of Israel and beyond would come to this central event that we had so well read just before, to remember who they were, a people bought by the blood sacrifice of a substitute. And at this moment, dripping with significance, Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem. At the same time, that tone of death, verse 56, the crowd say, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? That is to say, they knew it was on the front of CNN and BBC and ABC and SMH and all of the publications and podcasts. Everyone knew the Pharisees were out to get him. But would he go to Jerusalem as a proper Jew, as the most significant spiritual leader, or would he avoid it? That's the question. And yet, verse 57, they knew, they knew that the Pharisees were ready there, waiting to entrap him and kill him. Verse 1, we move the scene six days now before the Passover, Passover again, and it's Bethany, just three kilometers outside Jerusalem. Bethany, which is the place of the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha, where Lazarus, just in case we missed it, had been raised from the dead. I love John. Unlike Mark or Matthew or Luke, who are a little bit subtle, John just tells you in your face. He's a good gospel writer for people like me. But just a reminder, Lazarus with Jesus, who had been raised from the dead. And then verse 2, there is this great big banquet in honor of the one who gives life from the dead, of course. Of course. In his honor, they are reclining with him at table. And what a thing, the man who was once in the tomb, lying down on his elbow, that's how they did it, reclining, their feet like the spokes of a, a wheel, the table in the middle, their feet all spanning out, having a meal, celebrating in honor of Jesus. Then verse 3, perhaps creeping around at the back, silently, subtly, Mary, therefore, because of this happy scene, because of the honor of Jesus, took a pound that's a Roman pound, about 300 grams, of expensive ointment made from pure nard. This isn't made from concentrate. This is the real thing, 100%. And anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Extraordinary thing to do. Anointing speaks of royalty. That's what kings get. The Christ means the anointed one. That's what he deserves. She understood this is the Messiah, the King. And yet feet associated with humility and servitude. John the Baptist, I'm not even worthy to untie the straps on his sandals. Jesus, chapter 13, will wash the feet of his disciples. Speaks of humility. You see what Mary understands. Here is this great King. I adore him, and yet I'm unworthy. I will pour out my life even on his feet. Verse 3, the whole room begins to fill with the fragrance of the perfume. And that catches the notice of the men around, including Judas. What does Judas say? Verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, 
One of the disciples, in brackets, he who was about to betray him, we can't miss it, John tells us, said, Why this? Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And on the surface, I have to say, at a first reading, I'm sympathetic. (laughs) I mean, we're talking lots of money. According to all the commentators, 300 denarii is the equivalent of one year's salary for a laborer. In Australia today, I'm told that it's $70,000 per year. There's $70,000. Peter Procopio is looking askance. What's the proper, what's the proper number? Up, up. 100,000? 100,000. 100,000. $100,000 poured out on somebody's feet. Think what that could have done to the poor, for the poor. You put down a mortgage for a large house, multiple bedrooms. It seems wasteful. It seems extravagant. It seems profligate, to use the old word. It seems shameful, in fact. That's the point about the hair. Women in that society, as Numbers tells us, the hair was just for the marriage bed, for the husband. Yet... Mary is able to let it all out. She doesn't care what people think. She is infatuated, adoring of this one. And may I say, the same experience happens today for those who are devoted to Jesus. The world looks on at the medical student who's been plowing away, who got that ATAR, working away, and then announces to his or her parents, after careful consultation and thinking and so on and so forth, I'm going on the mission field. What a waste. Think what you could do with your medical degree. Don't go out there. Lunacy, profligacy, stupidity, shame. You think of one of you who are working in that company, and there is some issue, some social issue about which you cannot in your good conscience agree to and promote. Or or perhaps you are encouraged to lie, and you know you cannot do that. And yet there's the pressure, and you say, I will not do it. You're asked to move on. You slip off the ladder of the career. What a waste. What a shame. What stupidity. And yet what we see next from the Lord Jesus would hold us at this point and say, no, you are doing the right thing (laughs) by being a follower of Jesus Christ, by cherishing the blood of Jesus. Because there's an apparent waste, but also, secondly, a proper valuation. A proper valuation. An apparent waste, but a proper valuation. Look with me, please, to verse 6. He said this, that is, Judas said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. This is the divine perspective. This is the perspective of Jesus, of God, who sees the heart, who sees that Judas didn't want the giver, just wanted the gifts. And he betrayed him for $100,000. And then Jesus says, verse 7, leave her alone. Leave her alone. She was right. 
It was so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. You see, all the commentators say Mary was a bit like Caiaphas. She spoke better than she knew. She didn't really understand what Jesus was going to do. I want to say, I'm not so sure. You see, Mary's the one who listened at Jesus' feet in Luke's gospel. Mary's the one who's understood the illusions that Jesus has been making. Mary is the one who understands that the life that was brought to her brother, according to Jesus and what he's been saying, and the pattern of the scriptures must come through death, through sacrifice. She understands the burial, and she went out to Double Bay, to a perfume shop, and bought the most expensive perfume she possibly could, and poured out her savings because she thought, when Jesus dies for me, I'm going to give him the best. But do you know what? She was so overwhelmed at that dinner party, she saw her brother smiling and happy before, dead in the grave, and she said, I can't hold it anymore. She pours it out on his feet and she wipes it with her hair, no matter what the opprobrium, the scorn of those around her. She understood She understood. What did she understand? She understood that Jesus is the true Passover lamb, the one who dies on behalf, on the place of the nation, of the world, for the sins of the whole world. She understood her own sin. She didn't share it with the world, but she had the secrets that we all know, that no one else knows. She knew how she had hurt people over and over again, the same mistake. She knew how she deserved to be cast out from the presence of the Lord. And yet he welcomed her and loved her and was going to die for her. She understood that the life that was given to her brother, which was a picture of the eternal life that Jesus comes to give, is hers, but only through his death on her behalf. And therefore, to her, rightly, this is the most precious thing this world affords. And she wanted to show it. And she did not care what people thought. And may I say, she was right. Because if we fast forward into eternity, there are two different situations, two valuations. There is Mary at the right hand of her Lord and Savior in the eternal banquet with Lazarus, of which this is a picture, enjoying eternity with her creator. No more tears, no more sin. Seventy, a hundred thousand dollars? Trinkets, nothing. And then there's Judas, eternally separated from God, experiencing the just indignation of God in hell for eternity because he chose the cash instead of the Lord. And it becomes very clear then, doesn't it? And it's at this point that a preacher could say, now you don't value the blood of Jesus for enough. Value it more. Be more sincere. Be more sacrificial. No, you're here. Today, in 21st century Sydney, in 2024, that you have gathered here to listen to the words of Jesus Christ while the rest of the world thinks you're insane or a bit ineffectual and 
into do-gooding. Now, you are among those who have believed. You see what happens in verse 9? When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. That's the key thing. And you who are here this morning, who put your trust in Christ who confess Christ as Lord, I want to encourage you and I want to say the valuation that you have made about the blood of Jesus is absolutely right. When you get the cold shoulder or the lifted eyebrow, I'm a Christian, I follow Christ. When at work, they talk about you, that you're the God botherer, the Bible basher. When you put yourself out there and want to talk to somebody about the life that you have at your own cost. When you feel the shame of giving your time and your resources and your money and your desires and energies and the hopes of your children to this cause, to the blood of Jesus, you are not a fool as the world would say, you are doing absolutely the right thing. And may I say, the world's option, which is the negative, is so ugly when it's stripped all the way back. Did you notice what happens to the Pharisees and what their attitude of heart is? They so do not want Jesus in their lives, despite who he is, despite all the evidence, despite there's a man in front of them who's been raised from the dead. The issue is not evidence. The world knows there's plenty of evidence. And instead, they would rather have two deaths. Lazarus, who is dead, try and put him to death again. It's like those those jack-in-the-boxes that keep on coming back. And Jesus, they'll try and do that too. Guess what? He comes back to life too. And here's the point. The wickedness and foolishness and arrogance of saying no to your God, I do not want you, is a terrible valuation and it ends in the worst possible place to give up that preciousness and gift for the trinkets of this world. And yet there's another option. To give your life to the one who died for you. And so next time, because it'll come soon, very soon, when you're wavering. Do I say, yes, I follow Christ? Do I stand? Do I speak for him? Am I known as one who gives their lives for him? Not because I'm earning anything, because he's given me everything. Well, can I say you've made the right choice? Keep on doing it. Because there is nothing, nothing in this world that compares. We're going to sing in just a moment. This is one of the lines. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. Isn't that amazing? If you're anything like me and you know your sin, how good it is to be white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray.
Oh, loving Father, we thank you for the death of your Son, which cleanses us from all our sins. We thank you that you've enabled us to value this blood, and we ask you to strengthen us every day to do so. Amen.